Our culture is changing more rapidly now than perhaps any other time in history, which means it's more challenging now to be committed, truly committed, to anything than it ever has been before. But surely, the most important thing to which we can give our lives is the worship of Almighty God. The truth is, when our worship is right, when it's good, when it's scriptural, when it's God-honoring, every other worthy pursuit in our lives falls naturally into its rightful place. Worship is commanded of God in scripture. Psalm 75, 1 says, we praise you, God. We praise you for your name is near. We tell of all your wonderful deeds. Are you committed to worshiping God? Thank you, Brother Aaron, for that word. You know that our theme here at First Baptist this fall is rededicate as we are exploring our theological vocabulary and our biblical vocabulary this year at First Baptist. And we are evaluating and learning more about all of the words that begin with that prefix, re. 2022 has been about re-everything. And so this season, we are focused on re-dedicate. And we're studying 1 Corinthians together as a church family. I hope that you have already picked up your copy of this study guide, Rededicate. It is a biblical resource for you um, to help you study 1 Corinthians. I uh, appreciate Kurt Grice putting it together for us. But it's really a, a resource that will help you not just in studying 1 Corinthians, but to, to study the Bible and uh, continue to deepen your understanding of the Scripture. And as you know, we're studying 1 Corinthians on Sunday morning. On Wednesdays at 12.30, I have a Bible study in the Fellowship Hall where we're studying 1 Corinthians a little more deeply. And then each week, Katie Hodges and I uh, produce this podcast, Tell Me More. And it is a further conversation about the sermon, the text that we've studied uh, on Sunday morning. And then also, you can always go to my website, thesacramentaljourney.org, and it contains all types of resources for you if you'd like to go there and guides in our study of 1 Corinthians, as well as material about many other topics that we include there, as well as resources that I suggest for you. So all that said, let's look at our lesson for today, Rededicate. I've entitled the message, Worshiping God Together. And our text is really 1 Corinthians 14. We're just going to look at one verse uh, that I'll read for us, and it will serve as a springboard for our conversation, and really an example of a principle that's found in 1 Corinthians 14 to help us better understand what it means to worship God together. So look with me at 1 Corinthians 14, verse 26, where Paul has written, What then shall we say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, each of you has a hymn or a word of instruction, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everything must be done so that the church may be built up. So this morning, I want us to consider the whole topic of worship. And here's where I want us to begin. Religion is universal. Every civilization unearthed by archaeologists and studied by anthropologists 
has an altar. In other words, it's, it's been my observation that altars are ubiquitous in the study of the history of humanity. If you study the history of human beings, go all the way back to our beginnings, Mesopotamia, you'll discover that those ancient cultures all had altars. If you make your way to ancient Egypt, if you travel across the rest of the continent of Africa, if you make your way into the ancient world of Asia, if you happen to study the history of Europe, if you come even all the way to the Americas, here's what you'll discover. We find altars everywhere. There are objects of worship in every ancient and modern civilization. There are all kinds of gods and goddesses that are present throughout human history. In other words, it's just universal. And this universal expression of religion, it represents something about us as human beings. It, it demonstrates an impulse in all of us. Greg Holifield, he is a a Christian professor at the Memphis College of Urban and Theological Studies. He says that recently he went on a trip to Key West and he found himself in Mallory Square in Key West, which for those of you who've ever been there know it's somewhat of a famous place. It's where people gather every day at the end of the day to watch the most spectacular sunsets available in America. It's where you can actually see the sun drop off the horizon. Holyfield went several days and he said he was shocked because every day, he said, once the sun dropped, everybody just clapped. And he said he paused and he wondered, why are they clapping? Well, what I would say is, th there it is. <laughs> it's just this desire in all of us to, to celebrate, to um, acknowledge there's a force greater than us. There's, there's something beyond us. There's this, there's this innate desire that results in a universal expression of worship. You find example after example after example throughout all of human history, devotion, sacrifices, and people whose behaviors are guided by their beliefs. We're, we're just by nature curious. We can't help ourselves. As human beings, we just ask questions. We, we, we want to know how. We want to know what. We want to know why. You know, recently I saw um, Ricky Gervais. Is that how you say his name? Is that right? Ricky Gervais. I got it right this time, didn't I, Dan? I missed it in the first service. He was on Stephen Colbert, okay, on his talk show. You know, we have these three talk show hosts now at night, Jimmy Kimmel and... Uh, Jimmy Fallon and Stephen Colbert. I, I find Colbert to be an acquired taste, to be honest with you. But, but I, I watch him occasionally. If you don't know anything about Colbert, you know, uh, I'll let you know. He is a very strong Roman Catholic. And he takes his faith very seriously. Ricky Gervais is an atheist. Colbert knows that. They have a long-standing relationship. They have kind of an ongoing conversation about the existence of God. So this particular episode, you can... You can uh, Find it. It's on Instagram. It's on, uh, on YouTube. But anyway, basically, Colbert and Gervais get into this conversation about God. And um, Colbert says, I know that you're an atheist. And Gervais said, yes, I am. 
And so they had this conversation, and, and Gervais tells Colbert, you know, there's not a whole lot of difference between me and you. And Colbert says, well, yes, there is, because I'm, I'm, I'm obviously a theist. I mean, I'm a Christian. And he said, yeah, you know, there's about 3,000 gods in human history. And he said to Colbert, you don't believe in 2,999 of them, right? You just believe in one of them. He said, so I only believe in one less God than you do. So Colbert said, touche. He said, so what do you believe in? Ricky Gervais said, science. Science. In other words, he said, if all the books of devotion in the world disappeared and human beings were to restart and rewrite, they would write science books because that's really the answer. Well, here's what I would say. Science can answer some questions. For example, how or what? But you know, there's a much deeper question. In fact, I, I think it's the most profound question. It's deeper than how or what. And it's the question, why? Why is there something instead of nothing? And why do I know it? Why can I perceive it? Why is it all here? Even more profoundly, maybe the most profound question, why am I here? That's a deep human question. You know, used to, Cindy and I had weenie dogs. I love weenie dogs, y'all. I just do. For about 30 years, we had weenie dogs. We had a little Blackie, and then we had Annika, and I loved them, and they loved me. They were awesome dogs. They, you come home at night, man, they're all glad to see you. And when it came time to go to bed, they just went to bed. They didn't ponder the deep things of the universe. They're dogs. But you know what I do? Sometimes in the deep of night, I'll find myself awake pondering. Why? I wonder why I'm here. I wonder why all this exists. You know what? I've been all over the world. I've been in the thickest urban setting you can imagine. Places like Dhaka, Bangladesh, where you have a hard time finding any space for any other human being to move. I've been in some of the most remote villages on the continent of Africa. And you know what I've discovered about human beings? I don't care where you find them, what their station in life is. We ponder. We wonder. We want to know why. And with all due respect to Ricky Gervais, this is where science is mute. Science has no answer for why. Oh, it can tell me what. It can explain to me how things work, and I'm, a great, I'm greatly appreciative for science. But it doesn't speak to why. If you want to answer that question, you, you've got to in, enter into a different conversation. This is where religion comes in. This is where God comes in. And you know what? The reason we ask that question in the first place, here's what I would tell you. It's because we've been created in the image of God. And God has put something inside of every human being. It's his image. And because we have the image of God, we ponder, we wonder. There's this impulse inside of us. We can't escape it. We, we've got to have answers. We need to know why we exist on this planet. We want to understand why we've been made. And here's what I would tell you. God has made us for exploration and adventure. Human beings. I came across this story a few years ago. Reed Stowe, he's a, a sailor. 
And when he was interviewed in this magazine that I read, he was trying to set the record for the most days spent at sea without being resupplied. And he ended up spending over 1,100 days out on the ocean without being resupplied, which is a remarkable feat. When they asked him about it, here's what he said. He said, I've learned a lot about myself. I've learned that we as humans must explore. We must see and discover new things and we degenerate. My hope is that this voyage will inspire people to overcome their fears and follow their dreams to explore. Well, Justin Buzard, who's a pastor, he read this story and he wrote this blog about it. He said, what Stowe, the sailor says, is directly linked to being created in the image and likeness of God, who put us to be explored and cultivated in a to be explored and cultivated universe. God declared this vast and varied creation very good. He gave us a world with trails and truth, neighbors and noodles, Bibles and beauty, oceans and orchestras, spreadsheets and spears, arts and animals, language and lumber, the gospel and grapes, Yosemite and Yelp, Mars and marriage, goose down and God's glory. And the creator gave us eyeballs, fingertips, nostrils, holes in our ears, bumps on our tongues, synapses in our brains, and curiosity in our hearts as tools to explore with. We must see and discover new things or we degenerate. I completely agree. There's something about me. There's something about you. God put it there. It's an impulse. You, you, you can't escape it. You're going to have to answer it. And it's powerful. Well, for Christians, here's what we know. We know how powerful the image of God is in us, and we know what it does to us. It leads us to worship. You see, Christians, we know how valuable worship is. We know how crucial it is to our spiritual health. We believe it's how we connect ourselves to the one true God, the only God of the universe. So we worship him, and we worship him only. You know, a, a few years ago, I, I wrote this little book, Please God, 40 Days of Worship. Um, you can uh, go to my website, thesacramentaljourney.org, and you can download, some of you may be new to our church, you can download a copy of it, and, uh, or if you'll send me $9.99, I'll send you absolutely free a copy of that book. I don't know how it works, something like that. Anyway, but in the, one of the devotionals in that little book on worship, I wrote these words. Worship does not begin with music. Worship does not begin with our preferences or tastes. Worship does not begin with our expertise. Worship does not begin with our educated opinions. Worship does not begin with our anything except our willingness to bow in the presence of an almighty God. Worship begins when we humbly acknowledge God as the only God of the universe. Worship begins when we recognize God in our own personal lives as Lord. I'll stand by that to this day. Worship, it's crucial to Christians. We need it, and we know how badly we need it. Well, Paul planted a church in Corinth in the first century. Now, Corinth was a community that worshiped. There were over 12 huge pagan temples in Corinth and a synagogue. Worship was not foreign to Corinthians. Everybody in Corinth worshiped. You were accustomed, if you lived in Corinth, to seeing people go to worship. 
all kinds of gods and goddesses. But Paul was not necessarily concerned about all of that worship. He wasn't necessarily concerned about what's taking place at the temple to Aphrodite or the goddess Roma or the emperor's cult. No, Paul was concerned about the worship of the Christians in Corinth. And so he addresses his concerns in this letter. So let me set the context for you real quickly, and I want to share some principles with you that I think we can take with us today. The Corinthian church was in chaos with regard to public worship. In particular, there was confusion regarding the utilization of the public gifts of prophecy in tongues. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14. We've talked about that already, but some of you may not have been with us. The church in Corinth didn't meet like this. They had no huge building, no big banquet hall, no fellowship hall. They met in houses all across the city. And when they gathered, there were people in the church every Sunday who were enamored with the most public gifts. Prophecy, preaching, proclamation of truth. It could either be prepared by someone like me or it could be instantaneous leadership of the Spirit by someone in the body and speaking in tongues, which was speaking in language that was unintelligible, had to be interpreted for the church to understand what was going on. Those were two very prominent gifts. They were being abused in the church. The church was in chaos. They were concerned about it. They wrote Paul and asked about it, so Paul's trying to help them understand it. So 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 speak to that. And here's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians 12. He gives the church in Corinth a theology lesson. He shows them why the Spirit of God has been given. He teaches them pneumatology. That's the doctrine of the Spirit. Explains to them the gifts of the Spirit. He then teaches them ecclesiology in 1 Corinthians 12. Here's what the church is supposed to do. Then he tells them in 1 Corinthians 13, it doesn't really matter what you do if you don't love each other. It doesn't matter if you speak in tongues. He says you can speak like angels. And it doesn't matter if you don't love each other. If you don't love each other, none of it makes any difference to anybody. So Paul's admonition in chapter 13 is his ethic of love. Then he comes to chapter 14, the page we're looking at, and he says, now, here's how I want you to do it every time you gather for worship. This is how it needs to look in Corinth. So what do we learn from what Paul says to them on page 14? Okay, I'm just going to give you a couple things. The first one is this, corporate worship it's for all of us. It's not just for the people who have the public gifts. Those who have what people think are the primary gifts. No. Corporate worship is for everybody. Look again. If you just have your Bible open, look again at verse 26. Paul says, so what do we need to say, brothers and sisters? When you come together, in other words, when you gather, each of you, everybody, he says, everybody has something to do. He just lists a few options. That's not exhaustive. He just says, here's what's happening. Everybody has something to bring. Each one of you, your presence matters. In these house churches, Paul says, come to church, bring your giftedness, and you're going to make a difference. You, today, 2022, you live out your giftedness in and through the local church. As a Christian, that's why we believe in and we need the local church. And when we worship together as the people of God, it offers you this opportunity to express your gifts, to be renewed, to be revived, to be instructed, to be blessed. See, Corinth, these people needed worship. And they needed to do it right because they were experiencing something different than you could get anywhere else in the city of Corinth. This, what was happening in these house churches didn't take place anywhere else because the first century, y'all, was a divided culture and society. 
You just didn't do things together. You didn't cross lines in the first century. You knew your place and you stayed in your place. You stayed on your side of town with your kind of people. That's just how it worked. Guess what happened in the church though? The church is planted and guess what happens? All of a sudden men and women are worshiping together. Slaves and masters are worshiping together. Jews and Gentiles are now worshiping together. Husbands and wives were now worshiping together. That didn't happen in the first century. The wealthy and the poor were together. The educated, the uneducated. So whenever they came together as a church family, all kinds of social conventions had to be considered for the sake of the gospel. Paul's concerned about it because there were some people in Corinth who said, you know what, we're free in Christ. We've been set free now. We can do whatever we want to do. We can throw off any social construct, any social convention. We don't have to worry about it anymore. We can just do whatever we want to do. Well, the people in Corinth were watching that, and because the Corinthian Christians were declaring their rights so loudly, the people in Corinth couldn't hear the gospel anymore. They would come and visit some of these house churches, and they were seeing what some of these people were doing, and that was so loud in their ears, they couldn't even hear the truth of the gospel. For example, you read 1 Corinthians 11, and Paul says, women, when you get up to preach and prophesy, when you stand up, keep your head covered. Why would he say that? Did Paul have something against beautiful hair? No. In the first century, women, proper women, kept their heads covered everywhere. And whenever you saw a woman on the street with her head covered, that was an example of modesty. If she were married, it's how she honored her husband in public. A woman in the first century could not honor her family, really. The husband was in charge of honoring the family, but she could dishonor the family. One of the things she could do is throw off social conventions and just remove the covering from her hair and act like she was free to do whatever she wanted to do. That would bring dishonor. That was happening in the church. Paul said, when you come to church, don't just throw away all these cultural conventions. Keep your head covered. Why would you do that? Because for the sake of the gospel, these people who are around you need to be able to hear the gospel. They're looking at you. They're so focused on you and your rights and what you do, they can't hear the good news of Jesus. You come to chapter 4, 14. We get all freaked out when we read chapter 14 because Paul says women be silent in the church. I would translate it differently. That word women, is, you know, Greek is hard sometimes. It's the same word for wife. Husbands and wives were worshiping together in the church at Corinth and basically Paul was saying was wives, don't embarrass your husbands in public. That was an untoward thing to do in the first century. He said if you have something to ask your husband, don't debate your husband in public. Wait till you get home. Have the conversation with him there so that the people there won't be confused and think this Christianity thing is some kind of willy-nilly thing that's going to upset the entire culture. Instead, take that home. Some people read 1 Corinthians 11 and say, well, Paul says keep your head covered if you worship, I mean, if you preach and pray chapter 14 keep silent did Paul forget by chapter 14 what he'd written in chapter 11 no you and I just need to have sense enough to read the Bible and understand what it means not always just take it for what it says so are y'all still with me here's the point Paul is saying look guess what worship's about guess what it's about look at what he says in verse 26 look at the end of it everything must be done so that you will be happy and you will like it. And you won't ever fill out a complaint card stuck in the pew. What's it about? He says everything is to be done so that the church can be built up and strengthened. You see, when we come together for worship, that's what it's all about. It's to build up the church, build us up, strengthen us, empower us. 
renew us. It's at the heart of everything God is doing. That's why, let's take this lesson quickly. Corporate worship is a unique experience. It's a unique expression and experience for the people of God. There's nothing else like it. What we're doing right now, this won't be repeated this week unless you do this again. This, this is a unique thing. When God's people come together and worship, look what God did. God placed worship in the heart of the weekly rhythm of his people. When he called Israel to himself, he said, here's what you're going to do, Israel. Last day of the week is mine. I want you to cease from what you're doing. I don't want you to go to work. I want you to mark it. The last day, the Sabbath. What does he say in the Ten Commandments? Remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. It's mine. Every week, not once a month, not once every 10 years, every week. You know why? Because God has built us to live in a rhythm, and we can't help it. It's just how we're built. For example, every evening, if you're a normal person, you're going to get tired and do what? Go to sleep. Get rest. Wake up. If you don't think that daily rhythm has been built into your life to keep you healthy, just don't do it for a while. There are studies that show how life-threatening lack of sleep can be. We have weekly rhythm, monthly rhythm. We have seasons. We have seed time and harvest. We have the seasons of the year. We're just created to live rhythmically. Well, God said, I'm going to make it easy for you as my people. Every week, I want you to pause one day, and I want you to give me some time. Well, guess what happened? Christians, those early Christians, do you know they were all Jews, They were used to worshiping on the Sabbath. And guess what happened? Jesus was resurrected from the dead on the first day of the week. And those early Christians said, you know what? The new era has begun. The age to come has has been now established on earth. And the new covenant has been given. And we're going to have a new day to worship. We're going to honor Jesus. We're going to start our worship on the first day of every week. So now for 2,000 years, Christians have said, we don't worship on that last day. We worship on the first day of the week. And we honor Jesus every time we do it. And so as Christians, our day has shifted to Sunday, and it's a weekly rhythm. It's the time for us to honor the Lord Jesus. It's how we begin our week, and you know what? You need it. Gordon McDonald, he used to pastor a little small church in Manhattan, and he said he had a doctor in his church there, and one day they were talking after church, and he said, the doctor said, Pastor, you have no idea how much I need this Sunday morning worship. He said, you know, I'm a doctor in Manhattan, and Gordon said, I know. And he said, man, I I live just outside of Manhattan, so get up on Monday morning, and I ride the train in, and he said, man, I've, I've had Sunday, and I'm, I'm full, and I've been blessed. And he said, I ride that train in, and I get to that busy hospital on Monday, and the grind, and the decisions, and the challenge, and the pressure. He said, man, I get back on Tuesday. He said, I get back on Wednesday. And he said, the gravitational pull of my life just drags me down. He said, the only way I know to say it to you is life in Manhattan can be very debilitating. When I read that story, I thought, you know what? Life in Arlington can be very debilitating. You go to church on Sunday, you'll be blessed, you'll be encouraged, you can be renewed, you'll be strengthened, and you go back to your life, and your life is filled with deadlines and pressures fractured relationships, consequences of really poor choices, events that are beyond your control, 
problems in our society. And you can find yourself by Wednesday or Thursday being drugged down by the gravitational pull of a very debilitating culture. But I've got good news for you. Here's what the Lord has done. The Lord has put a weekly rhythm into your life where you can climb out of it every week, (laughs) where you can come and worship God. You can pause and acknowledge him. And in that rhythm of your life, you can have a reset. That's what Sunday morning is for me. It's, It's a reset. It helps me reorient my life, helps us all get redirected, reorder our priorities, get reconnected each week to sacrifice, to service, to devotion, to prayer. We can have our priorities, our perspective reshaped. It can remind us of our call to the mission of God, our very reason for existence in the first place. It's a time to renew our relationships with one another so they'll be deeper and more meaningful. It gives us a chance sometimes to repent from our sin. Sometimes in worship, I'm confronted with my own sinfulness it allows me to reflect upon God and his greater truths it gives me a chance to reenact the gospel as one of God's children it gives me an opportunity to continue to rehearse for heaven so that I can live in this heavenly colony on earth it reinforces the truth that I'm not at the center of this universe my life is connected with yours through Jesus and together in a weekly life we can come together and worship the only true God the almighty creator of heaven and earth. That's what worship is. So, yeah, so this morning, let me give you the quick application. Rededicate, that's our theme. Perhaps I'll put it this way. Let's worship together. So let me challenge you. Let, let, let me exhort you. Let's worship together. Let's be committed to the worship of God. What grander thing could there be? What what could call for more out of me or you than the worship of Almighty God? Is there something grander that I haven't found in American culture that could be more magnetic, that can draw more out of me than the worship of God? You see, it's, it's something I need, and you do too. And let me just say this to you, if I may. As your pastor. It's not just when it suits you. It's not just when it's convenient. It's not just when it's easy. Come on now. Surely it's not just that. You see, we're the people of God. And do you know that the people of God, you're going to spend eternity with them. You know that, right? I'm talking about all the people of God. And do you know anything about them? Do you know these people? I'm talking about our brothers and our sisters who span out across history and across this planet. Do you know anything about them? Do you know who we are? Do you know these people? You're going to be in eternity with them. Can I tell you about them? These people, the people of God. I want you to know what they've done across the world and across time. They've worshipped. They've worshipped in huts and in hollows. They've worshipped in cathedrals. And they've worshiped in caves. They've worshiped in the midst of a threat of persecution. They've worshiped after their leaders have been burned at the stake. They've worshiped in the midst of wars and famines and pandemics and plagues. The people of God, they've worshiped in secret. They've worshiped out in open fields. They've worshiped in hardship. They've worshiped in 
plenty. They, they've worshiped through the depression. They've worshiped through the economic booms. They've worshiped early in the morning. They've worshiped late into the night. God's people. You know why? Because God's people. We have found rest for our souls. We've found respite for our troubles. We have found renewal in our spirits when we worship God together. So can I just say to you this morning, you and I, let's worship God together. Let me pray for us. Father, we we are grateful today for so many things. My goodness, all these babies, young families scattered out before us, seasoned veterans who've made this church what it is, and people from all walks of life, all races, all backgrounds, gathered here in one place to worship. Wow. We thank you for it. And we pray, Lord, that we'll never lose sight of the beauty of it. And they will recognize the value of it, the meaning of it. And that you'll find us as people who long to worship you. People who see that weekly rhythm as restorative, not prohibitive. As a blessing, not a curse. As a joy, not a duty. We recognize the beauty and the just the value of being in your presence with your people experiencing the transforming work of the gospel in our own lives may that be so we trust God you'll be honored as we worship you in this place we pray it in Jesus name amen